0: Samuel Pike, and Samuel Hayward's Cases of Conscience, 1755. Question number two. What methods must a Christian take in declining circumstances to recover a healthful and vigorous frame of soul, so as to be able to maintain real and close communion with God amidst the hurries and busyness of the world? This question is formed from the following letter. Quote, I have, through a great multiplicity of worldly affairs, and a deep engagement in them lost that savor and relish for divine things I once experienced, and have become a stranger to that real communion with God, which was previously my chief joy, and I have so greatly declined in the Christian life that I can sometimes omit the duties of private prayer and meditation and at other times I perform them with formality and coldness, and I am in no way suitably affected with my sad affections. Indeed, sometimes I have been helped to bemoan my sad case before God, and to plead with the blessed Jesus, the great and good physician, to heal and help me. But alas, things remain with me as before, and if there is any alteration in my case, I really think it is for the worse. Quote. this is a question which I have no doubt is suitable to the cases of many of God's people in the present dark and degenerate day. When there are so many temptations and difficulties to cool their zeal, damp their joy, and fill them with formality and indifference of spirit in the service of the Redeemer, it is not with us as it was with our forefathers. We do not have their zeal, their faith, their love. We are not humble as they were, nor so watchful as they were against the temptations and sins to which we are exposed. We don't discover that acquaintance with the power of religion which they had. We don't walk so closely with God as they did. In short, we have the name, the form. But we don't have so much of the life, the spirit, the power of godliness as our forefathers had, who are now in glory. We are more worldly, more selfish, more proud and haughty, more careless and negligent of our spiritual frames and our spiritual conversation. And in all respects, we have more of the appearance of almost Christians than they did. Yet, blessed be God, this is not the case with every individual. There are a few who desire to honor God by a lively faith, a becoming zeal, and a close and humble walk. A few whose concern it is to make the greatest advances in grace and to maintain daily communion with God amidst the various hurries of life. They cannot live long without God. They are never easy except when their feeling is animating and quickening presence with them. Inner souls, in consequence of it, are warmed, enlivened, and breathed out desires for him. This seems to be the case with the person who sent in above question. You know something of the excellence of communion with God, my dear friend. You have found what it is to have a sweet relish for divine things. And now you are full of uneasiness at the sad loss you have sustained through the hurries and enjoyments of this life and desire to have your former experience revived, and to find your soul again in a lively, healthful, and vigorous condition. You are not alone in this. I am persuaded that many speak the same language you do, feel the same things, have the same desires, and are equally at a loss as what to do. It is a case of some importance. May the Spirit of God enable me to answer it in such a manner as may, through a divine blessing, be effectual to bring your soul and the souls of others near to God, and to quicken you to the pursuit of that which has a tendency to promote your growth and grace, and make you nourishing and lively Christians. But before I direct answer to your question, I would make two or three observations on it that may be an encouragement to persons in such circumstances as well as to be a caution to those in the pursuits of this world. Number one, it is a peculiar mercy when we find our soul in a declining condition to be immediately alarmed at it and sensible of it. When God is about to bestow the blessings of salvation, he first makes a sinner sensible of his need of them. So, too, when he is about to revive his work in the soul who has been running astray from him, he first gives him a sense of his decline, shows him where he has fallen from. what a stranger he is to the life of religion. What ingratitude he has been guilty of! How much he has lost the pleasures of the divine life, and how much he has dishonoured a God, who called him out of darkness into his marvellous light, to lie asleep, as David did after his adultery and murder is awful. The sin is of a hardening nature. The Christian is often stupefied and benumbed with it. It shuts his eyes and hardens his heart. He is lost in some measure his ill and liveliness. His graces are withering. His duties are cold and formal. Indeed, he can oftentimes omit them. He doesn't have that communion with God he once enjoyed, and yet he appears to be contented. This is a melancholy case. Bless God that it is not your case. You appear to be sensible of the unhealthy condition your soul is in. You see it is not with you as it was in months past. Bless God, Christians, if you are sensible of any decays, if your eyes are open and your soul is impressed with a deep sense of the loss of communion with God, the neglect of your duty or mere formality in it. Number 2. We should esteem it a mercy if, when under decline, we earnestly desire a revival. This appears to be the case with you, my friend. I think I see you viewing former seasons of communion, falling down before God and under a deep sense of your declining circumstances. I hear you humbly addressing him in the following manner. Lord, show me what you would have me do. I'd acknowledge my many omissions of duty my great carelessness and negligence, and be deeply sensible of the loss I have sustained. Oh, revive your work and my soul, and let me not remain at this languishing rate. Lord, quicken, quicken this lawful heart, and kindle the sacred spark afresh, and let me be all alive for you. How happy it is when we are enabled to speak such language, and find our soul in such a frame as this, but on the other hand to be careless and unconcerned. To be easy and contented in such circumstances is an awful sign that religion is languishing in our soul and that there is no present appearance of an alteration. David, when awakened, was not only sensible of the dangerous condition he had been in, but he desired a revival of the work of God in his soul that he might again enjoy communion with him and nourish and prosper in the divine life. Therefore, he earnestly prayed that God would graciously look upon him and return to him. Psalm 51 verse 7 Number 3. It is a difficult thing to have much to do with the world, and to grow in grace. Through the degeneracy of our hearts, the world has become an enemy to our souls, a hindrance in our way to heaven, Many like the young man keep their enjoyments to the loss of their souls. The Christian himself has found the emptiness of the world and its insufficiency to satisfy an immortal desire. Notwithstanding that, is ready to be too fond of it. He finds it a sad clog and hindrance to him at times. He would often leave it behind when he goes to worship God, but it will follow him from duty to duty. Interrupt his communion with God, lead his heart aside, and damp the exercise of every grace. Already is a Christian to swell with pride on account of his flourishing enjoyments. We need great grace to keep us humble and prosperous, circumstances either of soul or body. Is a Christian immersed in cares? Here he is in danger of being filled with too much anxiety and of employing too much of his time in the world to the neglect of some important duties of religion. It is in a suitable discharge of these that the divine life is kept up in the soul. Thus, it is difficult for those who have much to do with the world to grow in grace. I mention this to quicken the Christian to diligently attend to those means that are necessary for keeping up his lively sense of the things of God and his soul and to keep him from being discouraged if at any time he sees that he has lost his frame through his many anxious cares, or through the temptations arising from this world. I don't doubt that this is the case with many. Many of you, my dear friends, have known what it is to lose communion with God through the hurries of life, and what it is to have your soul out of tune, what it is to be tempted to the omission of duties, I would include myself with you, and lay my hand upon my mouth, crying out, guilty, guilty. What then shall we do in such unpleasing circumstances? This leads me to directly answer the case specifically. What methods we must take to recover a healthful and vigorous frame of soul, so as to be able to maintain real and close communion with God amidst the hurries of life. It requires a person of great experience to give a suitable answer to so important a question, sensible of his own weakness here. I hope I have earnestly entreated the assistance of the Spirit of God. In consequence of this, my mind, I trust, has been directed to the following things which I would now humbly suggest to you. It's necessary in this case. First, examine carefully the occasion of your decline. It is plain... If we look into his word, that God brings some afflictions upon his people in the way of sovereignty, but when he withholds the special influences of his Spirit from us, the consequences of which are loss of communion with him, the withering of our graces, and a decline with regard to the life of religion in our souls, we may immediately conclude that we have dishonored God in some instance or other, and provoked him to thus leave us partly. It is necessary, then, to inquire into the occasions of God's withdrawal. Not only for our present, but for our future guidance. Was Job anxious to know why God contended with him in a way of affliction? And will we not be solicitous to examine into the reasons for our present decline, to lose spiritual enjoyments as much more melancholy than to be under the temporal afflictions? Come, then, my soul. And come, my Christian friends, and particularly come, my dear friend, who sent in the above case, and who desires a revival. Come and let us examine how we have provoked God to withdraw. What has been the reason for our recent coldness and formality? How did we come to lose any of our sale for Christ? How is it that we have been led to omit the spiritual duties of prayer, meditation, and so on? Why haven't we experienced the presence of the Spirit in ordinances, drawing our souls after Jesus, and shedding abroad His love in our hearts? Why is it that it is not the same with us as in months past, when we sat under the shadow of the Lord, and His presence filled our souls with unspeakable joy? We have reason to be jealous of our wicked hearts, and have feared a day of let us aside. And so we have grieved the Holy Spirit, and he has revealed his displeasure. Let us make the inquiry. Perhaps we have been too elated with spiritual pride. Pride is a great enemy to the divine life. It has often provoked his spirit to withdraw his presence, so that being in some measure left to ourselves, we might be humbled and not think of ourselves beyond what we should. It was pride that provoked God to leave Peter, and one can see how shamefully he fell. Luke 22, verses 33, 57-60 The Apostle Paul was likely to be carried away with pride, even under those high enjoyments he was favored with. Therefore he had a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1-7 to Some are proud of the world to grow in riches, and their hearts are lifted up as if they were more amiable or had more interest in God and others. Is this your case, my friends? Examine. Have temporal or spiritual enjoyments lifted you up too much? Have these vain hearts been flattering you as a person of some peculiar worth? And have you been ready to swell with that thought, and then from such an apprehension to look at others with an unchristian air? Again, perhaps you have been led by your enjoyments to indulge a security and a carelessness of spirit through the said wickedness of our hearts. We have often been guilty here, and so we have suffered an unspeakable loss. It has often been suggested to us after spiritual enjoyments that our state is safe and secure, that there is no depriving us of the promised inheritance. God has given us an evident token of his everlasting love for our souls, Therefore we need not be in our duty so much, but may indulge a little liberty, and enjoy a few of the pleasures and comforts of the present life, and we may do all this consistent with our hopes of a better life. These thoughts, perhaps, we have too eagerly imbibed, from their having a plausible appearance, but they have proved to be a poison to our souls. For while we have been taken this innocent liberty, We have insensibly grown careless and secure, and have lost our spiritual joy. This may also be the case as to its temporal enjoyments. Inquire, therefore, have these led you to a carelessness and security of spirit? God has perhaps increased your substance and given you everything richly to enjoy. You are like many in the world. You abound with comforts, and you too must be like them in frame and spirit. Oh, there is a great danger here. They apprehend themselves to be too rich to be religious. That God will pay deference to them on account of their station. And hasn't this been a temptation to you at times? And so you have sunk in your zeal and in your close communion and converse with God. Again, perhaps you have loved the world too much. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2 verse 15 Though you may not love the world in the sense of the apostle, your affections may yet be so set upon it. as to make a jealous God withdraw the special tokens of his love from you. It is in every way unsuitable to our profession of love for God. To be so fond of present things, it is offering the greatest affront to our adorable Emmanuel, as if there were more excellence in the world than in him or as if he was not a sufficient portion for us. My Christian friend, inquire how your heart stands as to the world. Have you been slighting your Lord, your husband, your best of friends, by valuing the world too much? Again, perhaps through a multiplicity of engagements, you have been tempted to neglect those duties in which Christians meet with God, and by which they find their souls enlivened. Every duty, is beautiful in its season. There is a time to mind the world, and a time to attend to the affairs of the soul. To be diligent in our crawling is doubtless a duty. A Christian who is careless and is lawful in his worldly affairs is no honor to religion. I would not throw one reflection upon industry in the pursuit of her lawful business, if not to applaud it. But then we should remember that the world does not have a right to all our time. Martha was encumbered about making provision for our Lord when she ought to have been at his feet, hearing his doctrine. Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. So the Christian often is in this world when he should be in his family or in his prayer chamber. Perhaps your engagements are great. You are obliged to be in company with many. This is a temptation to you to neglect some important duties, duties that have been made sweet and pleasant to your soul. You will permit me, my dear friends, to be quite free. The case under consideration gives me an opportunity for it, and the prosperity of our souls has a manner of such importance that it requires it. I can only be inclined to think that evening clubs, which are so frequent uh, even among professors, are injurious to the Christian life. Let me explain myself here, for fear of mistake. I don't mean that we are to avoid all company and conversation in an evening. Christian conversation is necessary and greatly useful. No, while we are engaged in the affairs of this life, it will often be necessary for a Christian to mix with those who perhaps are not. But when so much time is spent in evening visits, clubs, and so on, that it interferes with and often sets aside the duties of the family in the prayer closet, or at least but little time for these things, it's no wonder that we must lose ground in the divine life. Especially, if this is too much our practice, we should remember that real religion does not lie in much talking, but in private converse with God, and in an experience of his quickening presence and grace. Christian conversation indeed has an excellent tendency to promote this, I know that it was found more among us, but great beauty and a good deal of Christian skill lie in the timing of these things. One duty should not jostle out or prevent the discharge of another. Let me appeal to your conscience, Professor, and ask you a few questions. Is it your usual practice to spend your evenings about the town? What is the consequence Do you find your family in a suitable disposition to attend a special worship at your coming home? Are they not rather wearied with the hurries of the day and wishing for rest? In such a circumstance, the duty is often sadly curtailed, if not totally neglected. And how is it with a closet that seldom has an evening visit, if you have no time to look into your soul, to mourn after the sins of the day, or to recall its mercies. No time for reading or meditation. One neglect of this kind makes way for another, and the professor can contempt himself with it. Oh, Christians, has this been the case with any of you? Has this been the case with you, my friend? Has the multiplicity of your affairs, or have your engagement prevented your often being in your closet? What have you lost? But alas, you were contented and think that none can blame you so long as you have been in company with some of the friends of Jesus. Go on so, and see what the consequences will be. You'll gradually lose a relish for the power and pleasures of religion, and your zeal will too much degenerate into controversy. You may talk much of God, but you will walk little with him. Pardon my freedom, my dear friends. I bring no charge against you but what i bring against myself, and I therefore inquire of myself as well as you. Thus, examine the occasions of your spiritual decline. I've given you some instances to direct and help your inquiries. But do not stop here. Carefully examine everything by which you may have provoked God to withdraw a special presence from you. Number two. When you have found the occasion for your decline, humble yourself before the Lord. Guard carefully against them for the future. Get your heart sensibly affected with your loss. And earnestly pray that the Spirit may not depart from you, but graciously return to you. This is the case with David, of whom we have already spoken. When he was brought to a sense of his sins, how humble he was. He fell down prostrate before God and acknowledged and bewailed his backslidings. He was jealous lest he had provoked God to entirely withdraw his presence and spirit from him. Therefore he reasoned with him for the return of his favor and that he would restore those divine consolations which he had experienced before but had lately lost. Psalm 51 verses 11 and 12 Though we may not have been provoking God to withhold from us His special presence by the commission of such open and public sins as David, yet, when we have been too closely attached to the world, have we neglected some of the great important duties of the Christian life? Have we been too proud, too careless and secure in our spiritual frame, our walk, and behaviour? Have we been trifling with God? It certainly becomes us to humble ourselves before him if we expect his return to us. we should draw near to him with weeping and lamentation, should often endeavor to impress our heart with a sense of our ingratitude, should often mourn before the Lord, and should set a mark upon those things that have any occasions of our decline, that we may watch against them for the future. Often reflect upon the loss you have had. Consider the sickly condition your soul has been in while the spirit was withdrawn from you. Consider how justly God might have left you, had he been strict to mark your backslidings. And, oh, admire his infinite patience, and earnestly pray for his spirit to return and breathe upon your dry bones. Let it be your daily concern to beg of God. That he'd keep your heart, your affections, quicken your soul, and not leave you to coldness and formality. When Israel was exhorted to return to the Lord after they had sinned, they directed to return by prayer, and instructed how to pray, or what to say. Hosea 14 verse 2 Take words with you, and turn to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So we will render to you the sacrifice of our lips. Prayer suits all cases, and is never to be neglected. Is anyone afflicted? Let him pray. James 5 verse 13. So has any fallen, grieved his spirit, and lost in some measure that liveliness and vigor of soul he once experienced? Let him return to God by prayer. Take words with you. Even those words which God has furnished you with, and come to him, take a promise in your hand, and come and plead it with God for the return of his presence and spirit. Number three, often make use of your covenant relation to God, plead in pleading with him and with your own soul. The person who sent in the case that is under consideration does not appear to doubt being a Christian, the very form in which aggression stands, supposes it. And upon this supposition I proceed to give you this necessary direction. Some indeed may say they cannot plead a covenant relation, for they are greatly in the dark about it, and they are afraid to do it. In answer to this in general, observe this. So long as you find that your viewing and pleading your covenant relation quickens you, humbles you, sets you against all sin, intends to fill you with love for Jesus and a service. You may look upon this as evidence of your interest in the covenant. Therefore, my friends, plead this covenant relation to God, if you would have it better with your souls, and be in such a frame as to maintain communion with God. 1. Plead it with God. A sense of it greatly tends to give you faith and fervency in prayer and to fill you with hopes of the divine presence and favor. Here is a glorious argument to make use of with God. Rejoice in it, my dear friend, and make frequent use of it. Often throw yourself at the footstool of God's throne, and address him in language such as this, Lord, am I not yours? Father, didn't you choose me from eternity and determine to bestow salvation upon me? Almighty God, didn't you undertake for me? Agree to put my name in the book of life. And in consequence of this, come and suffer and die in my stead. And haven't you renewed me, eternal spirit, and set the broadsail of heaven upon my soul? If I am not yours, Lord, what do such instances of communion with you mean? What does this love for Jesus, these desires for conformity to his image mean? Aren't these like so many evidences of your everlasting love? And oh, will you leave me to wither and languish, to grow cold and formal. Won't you come and kindle this sacred spark afresh, and carry on your work with an almighty efficacy. I acknowledge, Lord, I am unworthy of your favor. I have sinned, and I deserve your everlasting displeasure. But didn't it please you of your infinite grace to enroll my name among your chosen ones in the volume of eternity? And will you leave me? Lord, it was your own act, your free act, and I would humbly plead it. Therefore, come and visit my soul, shed abroad your love in my heart, pardon my backslidings, and may I be enabled to rejoice in your covenant love and walk and act as one who has a real interest in it. Thus plead with God, and follow the example of the psalmist, who in all difficulties, temporal and spiritual, addressed God as his God. Oh, the sweetness, the happiness that is couched in these two words, My God. Also, often make use of the same argument, and plead its covenant relation with your souls when you find your soul in danger through sin. When you have lost your frame and felt a coldness and formality, and the hurries of the world tempting you to a carelessness and a negligence of duty, plead with your souls in a manner such as this: Oh, my soul, am I acting like an heir of glory to be thus encumbered, thus anxious, and thus careless? What didn't a father love me from eternity and give to me a son? Didn't Jesus suffer and die for me? And hasn't the Spirit actually renewed me? In consequence of all this, isn't heaven my portion? Am I born to glory? Oh, then, why so cold, so formal? I will not leave you, O oh, my soul in this withering condition. I will plead with you of the Father's everlasting kindness. I'll beseech you by the tender compassions of the Son of God who gave himself for you. I will press upon you the infinite love of the Spirit who said to you, Live. I will not leave till I find things better with you. May the Father not justly complain of you. Hear, my soul, what he says. What? Didn't I look upon you from everlasting with infinite kindness. And are these the returns you are making? Is this alike one of my chosen vessels? Didn't I pass by thousands and look upon you? And is this all the sense you have of your obligations to me? Hear Jesus gently chiding you, my slothful soul, saying, What? Didn't I love you so as to die for you? Wasn't the day of your redemption upon my heart, from everlasting? And will my cause, my glory, lie so little upon your mind? Behold my wounded soul, see my bitter agonies, and all to rescue you from everlasting death. And will you not love me more? Here is a spirit bringing his charge against you, expostulating with you. Haven't I, in consequence of the Father's everlasting love and the Mediator's purchase, come and brought you out of darkness into light? What evidences! Have I given you of covenant love? How have I calmed your troubled conscience, shed abroad a Saviour's love in your heart, been a spirit of grace and supplication in you, and a spirit of adoption as well? And what? Are you so ungrateful, so cold and secure? Thus may God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, abrade and chide you, my soul. And shall this not move you? Lord, My heart begins to melt. It softens. It yields to so much love. Oh, come and do with me what you please. May I hate sin. May I love you with greater fervency and view every earthly enjoyment with indifference and use all to your glory. Thus, plead with your soul, your covenant relation to God and all its consequences. Do it frequently. And through the divine blessing, you will find it a happy means of enabling you to live above this world while you are in it. Of humbling you for sin, quickening you under all decays, and of bringing you into a spiritual and heavenly frame, so as to maintain some communion with God amidst the hurries of life. And number four, if you would keep up communion with God while you are engaged in the affairs of the world, take care and watch over your frame, your ends and views. You may lawfully follow the world with diligence, but take care that you pursue those measures that are necessary to keep your heart at a proper distance from the world, lest it be too carried away with it, and entangled in it, and prove what time you can for God. Particularly take care of your frame before you actually enter upon your secular affairs. Be concerned so the world doesn't creep into your heart. When you rise in the morning, your morning frames are of a great importance. Labor to throw aside the world, and don't enter upon business till you have earnestly sought the presence and blessings of God with and upon you. In your closet, consider well the affairs of the day, the temptations you are likely to be exposed to. Be earnest with God for a special presence to keep you. endeavour to get your heart impressed with the love of Jesus, and you'll be in less danger of being carried away by the temptations of the day. You read in the life of Colonel Gardner that the great man always had his two hours with God in the morning if his regiment was to march at four, he would be up at two. I don't doubt that the frame he had in his closet often went with him through the day. I would not intimate by this that it is the duty of every one of you, my friends, to spend two hours in your closets every morning. But I am satisfied that if no care is taken to set apart some time to God, that person can never be in a flourishing condition. as to his soul. Let me tell you, rising early is not only good for the health of the body, but for the health of the soul too, provided some time is spent with God in communion with our own heart. My friends, strive. Wrestle with God in your morning hours for His presence during the day, and labour to get love for Jesus enkindled in your breasts before you go out of your prayer closets. And watch over your frame during the day, examine your ends and views. The principles and springs from which you act. Watch over your deceitful heart. Walk as in the presence of God. And some, let the glory of Christ lie near upon your heart. And be afraid of anything that may dishonor God and provoke his spirit to withdraw from you. And thus endeavoring to cultivate a spiritual frame and temper. And to walk with humility and circumspection. You'll give evidence of your being Christians indeed. You may expect the presence of God with you, and I have no doubt the truest divine blessing you will find your soul in a thriving condition. I would now close these few hints with two remarks. One, from this, we find that it is not an easy thing to be a flourishing Christian. We must live much in the exercise of faith. We must be much on our guard against sin. We must be much in our closets, seeking God by prayer, examining ourselves, and keeping a strict watch over our hearts lest they deceive us. A careless Christian cannot be a flourishing one. If you would grow up like tall cedars and flourish as trees of righteousness, then you must not be cold and lifeless, careless as to your frames and conversation, like sentinels. You must be ever on your watch. Like persons running a race, you must press towards the mark with all your might. And like soldiers, you must be prepared for the battle and enter the field with your armor on, so that you may get daily advantages over your spiritual enemies. It may go from strength to strength, from one degree of grace to another. To be lively Christians, those who glorify God in every circumstance of life, requires grace. To be greatly exercised, to be much in the presence of God, and to obtain constant supplies out of our Redeemer's inexhaustible fullness. Number two, we should each be concerned to inquire how it is with our soul. If we are on the decline, to attend to the directions that have been given, put off a manner of such vast importance no longer. But examine whether or not you are Christians indeed, and in what circumstances, whether thriving or declining. And if you are on a decline, let me entreat you to consider what has been said on this subject, and to think it is high time to awaken out of sleep. Oh, if you have any concern for the honor of Christ, any concern for the peace and welfare of your precious souls, labor to have Things better with you. Let your loins be girded, and your lights burning. And may none of us be under the least alarm when death approaches, but then through grace be able to say, We have fought a good fight. We have finished our course. We have kept to faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give us on that day. And not to us only, but all to those who love his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Samuel Pike and Samuel Kayward's Cases of Conscience can be found online at onthewing.org.